any of us who've been in it for long enough, our entire career has been littered with jobs that we didn't get, projects that we thought were going to go for sure, dozens of unproduced scripts littering the floor. All of us are running into both major and minor failures in Hollywood every single day. For every success, there is months, sometimes even years, of painful failure. This is one of the only businesses I can think of where failure is the default. That's the norm. You have to be able to persevere. Like everything in our business, your hands get callous and it all bounces off you. Uh, you know, that process takes years. That doesn't happen overnight. I was being told by my manager, it's yours to lose. And I promptly lost it. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, well, that's it for me. I blew my one big shot. What I've realized from that moment is it's never one big shot. There will be other shots. Welcome back to Screaming Into the Hollywood Abyss, a podcast about rejection, failure and adversity in the entertainment industry. I am, as ever, your non-entertainment co-host, Dan Rutstein. And this week, at least, I am still your industry co-host, Noah Evslin. Today, I'm excited to have on TV writer, show creator, and showrunner Meredith Scardino on the podcast. Meredith, Meredith has worked on such show at shows as The Late Show with David Letterman, The Colbert Report, Saturday Night Live, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Mr. Mayor, and others. More recently, she's created Girls 5 Eva, season two of which premiered on Peacock in May. Welcome, Meredith. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. So sometimes we sort of start at the beginning and ask people about how hard it is to break into their career. Sometimes we leap right to the end and say, you know, you're super successful now. Um, you know, what have you learned along the way? Um, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go into the middle just to mix things up a bit. Um okay. because I'm I'm always fascinated by people's journeys because no one seems to have the same one and they don't always seem to make sense from the outside but moving from writing for the sort of late shows talk shows to creating a show i'm fascinated about that process so can we just talk about that transition and hopefully some things that went wrong along the way oh yeah you mean jumping from late night to like episodic like yeah yeah so i was at um I worked for uh, the Colbert Report for with Stephen Colbert for six years, which was just absolutely wonderful, uh, just an amazing, amazing experience. And then it was, it was actually, it was really hard to leave because I loved it. Um, but I got an opportunity to write on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which was called Tooken at the time. That was what the show was called. It was Robert, <laughs> it was Robert Carlock and Tina Fey's you know, first series after 30 Rock. And, you know, I'd been a big fan of theirs and I I read the pilot and I was just like, just all the lights in my brain were going off. And I was just like, oh my God, I need to work on this. This is just so exciting. And I would love to. And they said yes to me. Um, but so it, in some ways, like it was a, it was sort of a, because that was filmed in New York, there's there's only like a certain amount of New York talent that's here. And it tends to be like late night writers, people doing stand up, people doing improv. Um, and so a lot of late night writers end up ended up getting like sort of, I feel like swept into the Tina Fey, Robert Carlock universe or some of some of us did like Sam Means did. Um, anyway, so uh, it was kind of an 
it, it was a pretty direct transition. Like just, I read this thing I interviewed. And then like two weeks later, I was in a room starting the show. Um, the transition is interesting because it's like late night, you, it's like very dopamine where you read, you know, cr- like crazily read the news in the morning, come up with pitches, cr- shout them at Steven. He's like, okay, do that one, write that up. And then by that night you have something on or you don't, and then you go home and you do it again the next day. So there's like a very quick feedback system, which is really nice. In narrative, when you when I moved over there, the thing that was a little bit like, oh my gosh, is like, okay, we're writing things that don't necessarily see the light of day until you know six months from now or something like that. So you have to be like just enjoy the the data, you know, have it have a sort of a different um relationship with kind of comedy writing in a way. Um it's sort of like a more glacial pace, but it's, but it's really cool. And you like also talk more about your personal life and you write from a million different perspectives. Cause you, you know, an ensemble cast and things like that. So, um, it's definitely a transition though, writing from going from late night to, to scripted. Cause you have to think about like people growing and changing and, <laughs> and all that stuff that I didn't have to think at all about when I was just making fun of like what Mitch McConnell said that day. <laughs> but obviously it, in the, in the way you know you're in the ideas business and when you're on a show like that show presumably you know you make a you have some ideas you sort of as you say you sort of shout them out quite quickly and so you know you might pitch something and it it doesn't work for a million reasons but you've only been thinking about it for not very long anyway and so they say mm-hmm. you know we don't like this one and everyone moves on and presumably you get quite thick skinned about that um yeah for while. sure when you move to a show where, you know, you come in and you got, here's an idea that I've been thinking about for three weeks. And then they, at the end of it, they're like, oh, I don't really like that one. Is it, right. is, <laughs> is the rejection sort a little, more personal on episodic? In some ways. Yeah. I mean, well, there's two kinds of, I feel like there's two kinds of writing. There's still plenty of like throw a million things at the wall and see what sticks and the wall, I guess, is Tina and Robert and just see what they, they, they catch and like. Um, And so I was very accustomed to doing that. You know, it it took me a a few years of working with them to be in a position to pitch a longer form thing. Um, Like, to, you know, just pitch them like, okay, here's what we were working on in this other room. And here's how the story starts. And then, and then to, yeah, sometimes when those get thrown out, it's like, ah, you're, you know, it, it hurts a little bit more because you spent, you know, a week or two working on it. And then you just pitch it, it, it you know, sinks like a stone, but, and then also similarly, but it's also kind of freeing writer's drafts. Like, so when you um, work in episodic, you, you write, like a writer is sort of whose name is on the script. I mean, in comedy, everybody writes as part of, it's sort of a misnomer that it's, there's one person's name on a comedy script. Cause it's, it's like, we all tear it up like dogs, but um, when it, when it's your script and you go off and you write for a week and come back and hand this draft in and everyone reads it. And then you sit around a table and you're oh, sorry. And, and you're kind of like, watching people's faces to be like, did they, did they laugh? Or like when someone laughs, you're like, what would you, what'd you laugh at? What was that? What would you laugh, you know, about? And, um, and then you kind of 
tear it apart and say like, this worked, this didn't. And a lot of times, you know, you'll end up with, by the time you get to table, you know, rewrite it for the, for the table, um, table read, it's, it's so incredibly different. You might even, you might even have like one joke that remained from your writer's draft. I mean, that's, or sometimes none, honestly, sometimes it's like you can have your name on a thing that is like, you you didn't really, or, or the room, you just rewrote it in the room. So that's a little bit also like you need a thick skin just to be, just to be like, okay, yeah, this is part of the process. This is a hundred percent part of the process, which is like to, to, pitch the story, um, write an outline, write the script, see how the script is working, if where it's not working, totally rewrite it together with a group and then try it at the table read. And then again, you can love jokes and then they, they die at the table and you're just like, okay, all right. And if you still believe in it, you, you film it. But if sometimes you're like, okay, we need to rewrite that. Then you, it's just, it's a rejection. I mean, they're, your day is just part, part of your day is rejection. It's like a huge part of your day, like every day. So you just see that as part of the process. It's not like you should take it personally. Um, but you know, as long as you have some wins, you got to have some wins on the other side of it. So it's not like it's just rejection. Then I would say maybe try, try another job. I don't know. (laughs) I I, I love that we're digging into the side of things because we talk about this podcast about rejection, failure, and adversity, but we talk about failure and adversity more. We don't actually always get into the weeds of what it feels like to be rejected. And I was just Mm -hmm. talking to another writer today where young writers, you know, there's no training process really to what happens when you start to get rejected in a writer's room where your ideas aren't, aren't landing and you want them to, and you still think it's a great idea. And no matter how much you want it to, it doesn't matter if the showrunner doesn't respond to it. And yet, so my question to you is about the specificity of comedy writing, because I'm on the drama side and obviously we're still pitching things and we're still getting mm-hmm. rejected, but we're not pitching as many jokes that get responses. Yeah. And do you think that coming from uh, late night where, where you said it was like a dopamine hit, where you were pitching very fast, things were getting approved on air yeah. that night to TV, which is a little bit more long form. However, you still are pretty fast paced when you're trying to get these yeah. jokes into a script. Do you think that helped you get a thicker skin, like prepare for rejection? Can you talk about the feeling of rejection? Yeah. For those of you, those those people out there who have never actually gone through it. Yeah. Well, I think like, I think what it is, is it, it you're willing to just be like, my thing isn't precious. It's like you, I mean, when I first started at Letterman, I just, you just are churning material. You're churning so much material out in a single day, like hundreds of jokes. And, and same with Colbert report. You're like just constantly writing. Like you're, it's just, you're working this muscle that's just doing these little like um, math equations in your head and, and writing jokes. And so it's impossible for all that material to be accepted because it would just make your show 60 hours long, you know, the amount of, but it's, uh, but it, it just becomes part of the process to see about 80 to 90% of what you produce kind of thrown out. Um, But, and then, and then having that muscle to be able to like pitch a lot is very useful in, at least in the kind of rooms that I've been in. I mean, I don't know, in a, you know, in a more of a dramedy room, if it's more about, you know, character and story arc a little bit more. I mean, we're, we're, that stuff's in our show too. It's just that 
the jokes are kind of the tone. So jokes are a huge part of, you know, Kimmy Schmidt and Girls by Velva and stuff like that. So, um, so I do think that like the people that have late night experience are just used to that, that rhythm. And so it's just like, okay, that didn't work. Let me try another thing that didn't work. Let me try another thing. I think it's, I think it's hard for, um, I honestly, I think it's to, to enter into a comedy room. If you kind of haven't cut your teeth in a place where you had to pitch a lot, I think is really hard because I think if you open your mouth and pitch something and it doesn't get a response, then it's going to make you less likely to pitch the next time. Or I've seen, I've seen people like only like every, you know, they'll, they'll bat a thousand, but they'll not pitch that often because they only will talk when they know they have this like amazing jewel, which is awesome. But then you don't get like that much material out of some people that are like super funny, super smart, but it, I mean, it's, everybody has a, di- a different style, you know, uh, like I'm incredibly potentially annoying and loud in a room. Like <laughs> I have a really loud, like it's, I, I think I'm, I don't know. Everyone has a different style. And, every, and I also, I also think that now that I have a show and I have writers and people pitch stuff and it's super funny, but sometimes I can't like envision it for the show. So even though it's wonderful and great, I feel like I can't, you know, pick it up and visualize it for, for this project. So it's like, there's a million reasons why things get rejected. And I, I like, Oh, I think that people, you know, when they're in charge of their own thing, they put whatever you want in your thing, you know, it's like, it's, um, it's kind of freeing to be able to like put you're a hundred percent tone into things, but sometimes I'm like, I feel like, oh, I must not be getting their pitch. Like, like I know their thing is funny if the, and the way that they're, they're envisioning it. I'm just not seeing the same vision that they are. So there's like, there's, it's like a benevolent rejection, I would say um, when, you're in, when you're in a comedy room, hopefully it's not, um, or like a good comedy room. I feel like, uh, you know, you don't want to feel like it's, barbed or you know you're overly competitive or mean it's just you just want everybody participating and loose and having a good time and throwing out I mean I just like I just like a lot of content coming so however we can facilitate that um is is good for me I think I think for sure and that you know the best showrunners are the ones that are facilitating those warm rooms where the person who feels like they need to bat a thousand is freer to just to, to swing and miss and and you know because they have the confidence that the that the reception is going to be warm and loving or at least nurturing. But I, I want to go yeah. back. I, I want to go back a little bit because there's there's a, this point in your career that you uh, that we talked about, but only very briefly. You you're in late night and you're you're doing really well and a lot of mm-hmm. PBS shows you're on and then you read a script you love the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and you want to be on that show. Now, you know, the transition from wanting to be on a show to actually being on a show is there's, there's that, that's a big gap, right? So you must've had samples ready. You must've had, you must've seen the opportunity of this fit into your wheelhouse of some sort or had contacts or, and, or both. And were ready to, to kind of move on that and make a very big move. I'm guessing to the kind of writing you were doing before. 
Well, I had, you know, in order to get into late night, I wrote about a zillion packets for every show. I had a zillion things. And then, and then over the first writer's strike, I wrote a pilot for a show that was like set in the wilderness about people making a animal show that um, became my sample. And then when I wrote on the, uh, the Colbert report, I didn't have like, basically the Kimmy Schmidt kind of oddly sort of came to me in some ways. Like I, I found out about it through my manager who is one of the producers of the show and reps Tina Fey. So I like had a bit of a shorthand there. Like he just always thought I would fit in really well with them. Um, uh, so, you know, at, at different points during 30 rock, like at, there was one point at 30 rock, he was like, you know, I think they're looking for somebody. Would you be interested in you know, having no idea if I would get it? But um, it was like when I just got into the Colbert report and I was like feeling really loved and fitting in really well. And I loved it. And I was like, I can't, I'm not going to jump now. Like I just got here. And then, um, so I kind of had, you know, it always really wanted to work for Tina and Robert because I admired them so much, but it was just kind of like one hoping that they would like me. I didn't know that they would, but, um, also just trying to time it with my own career to feel like it was the, the right time to leave something that I truly loved, which, but so it, it wasn't, um, I feel like I beat down doors to get into late night. And then in order to jump to episodic, I had like a little bit of a smoother, smoother takeoff, uh, I would say. So you touched on, um, and didn't say it happened to you, but you said, you know, you touched on the importance of sort of a warm room and people feeling welcomed and obviously mm-hmm. avoiding meanness. Um, so, you know, I think I want to just touch on that side of things as we skip forward to you now having created your mm-hmm. show and, you know, you get the more senior you are, the more you get to set the tone for the sort of room you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess on the, you know, without necessarily naming specific bad experiences, when you became in charge, what things had you seen throughout your career in other rooms that you definitely didn't want to be fostering when you were in charge? Well, I think, uh, well, I've been lucky to to be in pretty, pretty good rooms. Uh, But I think that some of the things that I feel like I've stolen from both Tina and Robert and Colbert is sort of a no assholes policy where, you know, there's plenty of um, talented people out there that are also assholes and it's not worth their talent to also have the asshole be part of the mix. So it's like, no, we'll find talented people that aren't also assholes. So I think having that kind of policy and not, you know, and just generally trying to be a, as good of a person. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to like, you know, there's a lot demanded of you when you're in charge of a show. And so you're like more stressed than ever, (laughs) like, cause you're just like not sleeping and you have deadlines and just, it's a lot of, it's totally new experiences of being like part of the budget and like all these things that you never had to deal with before as you're just a writer group. So, but I try to, um, yeah, just bring like a, a, you know, actually Colbert always said this thing too, that um, I don't know if he invented or stole from somebody, but or not stole, but just credit somebody else, um, which is like, what, you know, the, the 
late night is kind of a grind in a machine. Like it's always going to be a machine. So it kind of should hopefully be a joy, like just make it a joy machine. Cause it's going to be a machine no matter what's going to take everything from you and be like, you've got to feed it and stuff, but you might as well make it a joyful experience or as much as you can. So I try to keep those things in mind, like no assholes and joy machine as I, you know, I don't know that I'm always doing a good job, but I try my best. <laughs> this is the, I think it's the, like the 73rd or 74th episode of this podcast and probably yeah. two thirds of the people we've had on have been show runners or show creators. And they all say, well, not, I'd say the majority of them have said they try and run a no arseholes policy. So I'm fascinated to know who's employing the arseholes because we can't seem I to mean, find anyone who is. Um, I mean, I don't know. I feel like the assholes were kind of, I don't, I don't I'm not sure. Um, I, maybe that's more of a director thing or <laughs> like the old easy riders, raging bulls. Era. Like, I feel like it's like people are cultivated the asshole for so long in Hollywood that it was like a, a calling card in some way that, um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know who's hiring the assholes. Yeah. Maybe we've purged the assholes from Hollywood. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully that would be lovely. I mean, I don't think people realize how often, how much time we spend in the room with people and why so many mm-hmm. showrunners are saying this no asshole policy, because you really have to think about the casting of your room because yeah. you're one person can throw off the whole dynamic and that really then throws off the content that you're creating because you're not mm-hmm. creating it as effectively, right? I mean, that's, I think that's like, like, and you don't know until you're in the room. You get, can call people until until you don't know what you have you got you have until you have. Yeah, it. I mean, there's plenty. Of, there's a million things that are part of a room that it's like so hard to figure out. Like, if some you know sometimes people talk too much and aren't on topic, and then that's that's a form of disruption in the room. That it's like there's a million reasons, you know, and even if they're nice, like it's just there's a million things that keep a room from running smoothly that you try to navigate and um keep things on course and it's it's challenging though i mean it's definitely challenging it's fun though i mean for me i think some of the most fun times and i don't know <laughs> i'm like a late night like when i'm on a deadline i'm i'm kind of a vampire like i like to write late and it's also like it's quiet then the production's done and all that um but some of the some of those like late nights are the most fun writing I have um, with the crew and everything. So So, uh, we just talked a little bit about balance in the room. You mentioned earlier on that um, I think you described yourself as potentially annoying in a room. (laughs) Um, So I'm just loud and I have a, I have a lot of shit. Like I I always have like no, I mean, when, when I'm actually in person, I have, it would, people call it like the, Scardino sprawl because I'll have like a laptop, I'll have notebooks, pens, phone. I might have my iPad. Like I just take up a lot of space. I also have this habit that of like kind of like an Elaine Bennis thing where I have I if I like something or I laugh really hard, I sort of hit the person next to me to the point where um I'll like slap their arm or something. And to the point where this guy, and I was in the mayor room, this guy, Brant Hamilton, he's lovely, hilarious dude. He, um, we bought him an extra arm that would go over his arm so that I could just hit that instead of uh. <laughs> making contact with him. Um, those are some of the reasons why I, I 
and noticeable in a room. Now you're in charge. What sort of leader are you? How would you describe yourself? You obviously have self-awareness because you wouldn't have the other problems. But it's it's interesting. I I feel like I leadership has always been challenging for me because it's it's a funny thing to be a writer and be really good at the writing part, and then all of a sudden someone to be like, okay, here, you're good at this one thing. Now also run, be the CEO of a company, you know, uh, which is sort of like what running a show is. So that's definitely the thing where I feel like I'm wearing my parents' suit or something a little bit, you know? Um, but I, I like to be, I mean, I, I, if I feel like I, if my positive qualities would be like, working incredibly hard. Um, I work very, very hard. And I try to like, I feel like I'm more of like a leader by example in some ways and just trying to keep um, the the positive energy up and the excitement up and the silliness quotient up. Um, but, but yeah, being like, the the su- most super organized that that's always been I mean I was that's always been a challenge for me I was like a I I my major was painting I have a I have an MFA in painting too like I'm like a sloppy artist type um, and actually speaking of rejection I was thinking about this and I was like what are you know I got you get wildly rejected in the art world I was just used to every week like in art school standing up and defending my work and that would be on and there people these critiques are like kind of relentless and also right after college I applied to graduate school for painting and um I got rejected from all 13 schools (laughs) that I applied to I mean usually they like people to have more experience and more a better body of work than I had just from undergrad um but still, you know, it's just like, I was very, and I, and I have like, a, you know, I have a, a very loud Italian family that, you know, my dad is like a scorch. I don't know if that's a real word, but that's how they always describe him is <laughs> like just being, he just kind of like gives me crap a lot. And so, so I'm just like used to rejection <laughs> generally in life. So I think I've um, developed like a somewhat of a comfort with, with it, um, as being like kind of the price of admission to, to doing this, this, this job and this kind of work. Definitely a skill that you can, you can nurture. Um, I kind of want to ask the flip of what Dan's question was about your leadership skills, because Uh you said that you came on, you know, and and we, I know this too, as a writer, you, you have a certain set of responsibilities when you're on staff. And then you're the showrunner and all of a sudden you have exponentially more responsibilities, some of which we've talked mm-hmm. about on this podcast. You, there was no way to prepare for it until it actually happened. And now you are, yeah. you know, staying up late, <clears throat> handling budgets, handling people, you know, all these different things. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you're now, you know, have multiple seasons of the show that you that you're currently created. Uh, what is the biggest mistakes you think you made in season one that you were able to like course correct in season two as you learn more about what the job was? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think season one felt because like we went back, you know, we not went back, but we, we filmed it before there was a vaccine and it just felt like every day 
during, you know, those early days of the pandemic of being able to go to work was such a gift and such a, like a lark, like, it was just like, I can't believe we're doing this. And so we, everyone, there was like a sense of like gratitude on set every day. That was really cool. And so it felt like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we actually shot this thing and filmed this thing and edited this thing, um, under these circumstances. Uh, and then season two, well, I think the challenge of season, so I think like this might be a mistake that I think people you make all the time where you always expect, okay, well, I did this thing. Well, it will certainly be easier this time. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you're like, oh, well, it'll always be like, that was challenging, but this will be easier. And then it somehow never is for other reasons. Like there's just, <laughs> just some, I don't know, some law of nature, but um, I think in season two, I had a new experience of, so season one, basically we pre-wrote most of the scripts because also because we didn't know when we could actually go into production um, uh, because of COVID and the pandemic and everything. And so we had about six episodes in the can or five and change by the time we actually filmed. And so that was kind of like a nice cushion to be like, okay, I have a couple more scripts I got to finish but I could do it. I've got a hiatus here. I got weekends here. I've got, you know, nights here. And um, season two, we had like a short, shorter runway, like, a, uh, and then we went into production. So pre-production on season two started like, I don't know, like six or seven weeks in to like the writing. And all of a sudden it was just like, oh my God, we're going to, we're going to start, we're going to start shooting this thing. So, so soon. So it was, it was a different, um, set of skills I feel like I had to develop in season two, which was more uh, like plate spinning and, and juggling, which was kind of like running from set to the room to getting scripts, you know, just, just like kind of um, <laughs> like uh, uh, Lucille Ball with the chocolates on the conveyor belt a little bit more like that. So because, because of the way production was um, kind of going on at the same time as writing was going on. So I had the room at the same time. Um, but I think some of the things I learned in season one, like I, I was very much because of the circumstances, I didn't have, like I had very few writers that could even be on set to kind of help produce their episodes in season one. Um, so season two, I still had that issue a little bit, but I had, much more of like my writers who are great, like were producing their episodes more and being able to like travel or be on set and take a lot of like, you know, kind of being in charge of the set while I was like back in the room or checking in. Um, but I, I do think like every, you know, if I get a season three, it will present a new, new challenges. But I, I think like what I learned in season two I would say it's just like going into season three is just to be watching my calendar, like a hawk it, that, that I think, you know, so I'm not, you know, playing catch up as much as it would be my like goal of season three. You, you mentioned in that, in, in that answer, uh, going from a set to the room and mm -hmm. we've been having these discussions, you know, 
with other writers about the room because the pandemic changed the game. We, we, my room is still virtual. So we don't, but we're a drama show and we're like, well, for dramas, we can say virtual because it's different. But for comedies, this is drama writers who really don't understand comedy fully, but for comedies, they have to be together. We would think because of the synergy. It sounds like your room maybe did bridge both virtual to in-person or a combination of we both. never did in person um never did in person. we've uh, i've been virtual for two seasons and some of the great things about that is that i it's allowed me to work with great writers that are in la that i never would normally ever be able to work with unless because they would you know maybe wouldn't move change their whole lives and move east um uh my hope is to be more in person this season uh if i if i get a new season um but yeah it's there is something i mean every i think every comedy showrunner or writer would probably say the same thing that like zoom has its benefits it's like convenient and and kind of easy like you can be anywhere you can uh like you know, it's great to knock out meetings. Like I find it useful for production meetings, for costume meetings, like all the meetings just to like knock out quickly where you don't have to like run around a building. Um, but it's, there's something definitely lost it, or it like takes longer. Like I used to describe it as like using, instead of like a strainer to strain spaghetti, it's like a using a baseball hat. Like it kind of works, but it also kind of doesn't work. Um, so I feel like it takes, maybe it takes a little bit longer or maybe you miss a joke that might've been built upon or, or something just because zoom's weird and people have overtalk and, um, it's harder to get a flow going or something. I mean, also speaking of rejection, I remember, uh, I was in uh, like early days of Zoom. I was on a Zoom room and I was pitching relentlessly something that I thought was hilarious. And uh, I think I was in the Mr. Mayor room. And finally I was like, guys, wait, I just want to like stop. I'm, am I on, Is um, can you guys hear me? Am I on mute? And t- I think Tina was like, Mayor, yeah, we can, we can all, we can <laughs> hear that pitch. We heard that pitch. I'm like, okay, are you sure you heard it? <laughs> um, but but yeah, I mean, Zoom works, but it's it's not ideal. There's there's less um, some of the absurdity that leads to really funny jokes. I feel like you don't really get the ability to do when you're virtual, but it does work. I mean, it, it's not like I'm really, really, really incredibly proud of. The, these two seasons of the show. Like, I, I don't feel like, oh, if only I had been in person, it would have been better. Like I I'm totally happy with um, how it came out. So it works. Uh, it's just a little weird. <laughs> so unfortunately we're, we're near the end of the podcast in the beginning, no. um, but so I, I want to ask a question about the future, but before I do, I feel like because you are a comedy writer and you tell good stories, I feel like there's probably an anecdote somewhere that we all should hear. Like, obviously, the the one about pitching in Zoom and not sure if you were on mute or not was the great sort of modern one. But just from your years <laughs> of, of being on these shows, are there any? Is there one particular moment where an idea you had bombed or something went wrong that 
Um, you want to share because I'm sure you've got one somewhere without putting any pressure on you. I mean, it just it happens so often. It's hard. They don't rise to being noticeable. I mean, I just feel like uh, I, the thing that I feel like is super comforting about being a comedy writer and the feeling of rejection is that even your heroes, like even the, the people you think are the funniest people in the whole world, like they pitch turds. Like they also pitch turds. Like you're, so do you, like no one that's like, no one is this perfect being that just owns it's gold that comes out of their mouth. Like everyone's capable of just making something terrible. <laughs> I think, or producing something, but, but then there's also the good stuff, but it's just part of it. You have to sort through all of it. I feel like to get to the things that work or the things that work in that moment. I mean, sometimes some of your bad pitches then later resurface and you're like, Oh, that works in this context. It's totally different. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, maybe I, am not easily humiliated. I don't, and there, and then, and that other people would go, Oh yeah, mayor, really? You should have seen what she did there. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. So, let's go to the future because obviously you're in the second season of your own show, which is obviously fantastic. Mm-hmm. You speak with great affection for, your previous life of working on those shows. Mm-hmm. If you could choose as a next step, uh, well, I guess your, con- your current show continuing for plenty more seasons, um, yeah, or exactly. create another new show, but it's, you know, it's your show and you're in charge and it gets picked up and it runs mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, maybe with another concept that you've been, you know, had in the back of your mind for years and you're, someone will now listen to you because you've obviously already mm-hmm. created one or actually you go back to the old world, but maybe you're, you know, head writer or the equivalent of showrunner on one of those daily late night shows, mm-hmm. or maybe it's features or something else. Like what's your dream next? I, mean, I don't know because I'm so in this, but I'll tell you things I'm interested in. Like I used to be an animator So I like, that was what I did for money. Basically when I was in grad school, I animated for, um, I did shorts for like comedy central and Bill Plimpton, this director and who's, um, incredible. And, uh, and so I was not a good animator, but I was an animator. And so I love cartoons. So I would love to do something animated at some point. Like it just, it just, it blends you know, peanut butter and chocolate, the things I like, comedy and animation. And then I also like, like, love the Muppets. Can I write the next Muppet movie? I would like to do that. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I love writing this show. I, I don't really have my eyes on the next thing yet because I feel like I'm still in the middle and don't, you know, don't want to like, leapfrog off of it into some, the next thing. But I mean, there's plenty of, of things that excite me for sure out there. Well, Muppets could be fun. Well, right. if, if you do a new Muppets movie, take out cigarettes. Um, we took our kids to see uh, Muppets Take Manhattan the other day. It was screaming. Oh, the rats smoke, don't they? The rats and smoke. loads of smoking. And 
inappropriate yeah. be sexual harassment by what's he called animal to people. Oh yeah, you know, there's which yeah. really Miss Piggy out. needed to get me too. She <laughs> she was really aggressive with Kermit. I think that's I think that stuff's taken been taken out, hopefully. And there's a big crossover possibility for your show with the Muppets showing up and performing and with oh your babies. And it would just, you know, you can just merge those worlds that. before you launch the spinoff. Uh, one but- time, I will say one quick anecdote, but one time um, we had, uh, not a Muppet, but we had um, uh, Cookie Monster on the Colbert Report and we all got to take our picture with Cookie Monster. And I like, there's a picture of me hugging it and I hugged it so hard that someone said quietly, there's a, there's a hand in there. <laughs> like they're like lay, lay off. There's a hand in there. I'm like, okay, sorry. But I was like, so excited to meet cookie monster. Just make sure you don't need to the cookie monster by, yeah. by inappropriate <laughs> like just, my, just aggressive hugging. I'm, a, I'm about to ask you the last question. I promise. But my very favorite experience working in Hollywood was working at the Jim Henson studio for a few weeks. And it was yeah. just like you, you, you're, you, you, you completely go back to the time in your childhood when these things were such a big part of your life. And you're like, the nostalgia was, 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 is definitely huge. We had, um, we had, uh, so our director, Kimmy Gatewood had worked with um, Sesame Street. And there was a point where in season one, where she, she was directing six episode six and seven. And um, we, we didn't have enough money to get to uh, use either live crabs in Kev's crabatory, like his, his crab kingdom or hermit crabs or CGI crabs. So she was like, we have, we're like, we have to have it move somehow. We need the convincing hermit crab. And so she uh, was so resourceful and like called up her friends at Sesame Workshop. We were shooting in a story at the time, same building um, at Kaufman. And they made us a puppet that was a hermit crab puppet that was operated by two adult like two full adults, <laughs> like just like operating the tiniest little thing on these long sticks. It was, it was wonderful. It was amazing. You need to have that in the corner, a corner of your office. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we are now at the time of the podcast where we have to ask our final question. And it's the question we ask everybody that comes on, which is if you could give one piece of advice to somebody coming up in the industry as a writer, what would that be? Um, well, I would say, I would say the thing that I would say the number one thing to do is to make things like, I feel like I, I often, you know, um, get asked from young aspiring writers, how do you get an agent? How do you get a manager? And I feel like those people come when you have something, when you have a job or you have like 90% of your you know, I feel like your first job is based all on your own hustle. And I mean, most, most of the work that you get is really all based on you and how much you hustle and how much you, you know, produce and write. And, and so the more that you have, I feel like, it, cause it's not, it's not this magic thing where these agents and managers just like deliver, you know, pick you up in a, in a stretch limo and then send you to Hollywood. Like it doesn't really work that way. Um, so I would just say like, write, write your face off. If you want to write, write what you want to write. The other thing I would say is that in, um, season one, a couple things I wrote, uh, or was heavily involved in, in season one, which was the song New York Lonely Boy that was about my son. And also this crazy song called I'm Afraid Don's Song of Fears, which is this 
laundry list of, of insanity that like Sarah Barella sings. Uh, those were two things that I felt like, I was like, is, are people going to like this? I, I very much connect to it. You know, the one, the song was about my son being kind of like wise beyond his years. One of the, you know, the um, like many uh, solo kids in Manhattan, in Manhattan are. And then the other thing was like, I, you know, I have anxiety. So it's like a lot of anxious thoughts that I threw all into one song. They're not all, you know, some of them are just one-off jokes that have nothing to do with things I actually think about, but um, there, or that, you know, my writers uh, contributed, but those two things really resonated with people. And I was so happy because it's like, if you, it was very affirming. Cause you're like, when you think to yourself, okay, I'm having this experience. Is someone else having this experience? and you're not sure, but you write it and you put it out there and then you start to see, I mean, Twitter's can be a, a horrible, horrible, horrible um, program, but it's also, you know, can be wonderful and, and let you know how materials landing with people. And um, just to see like those two things, especially resonate with people is like really affirm. And you're like, Oh, well, if you, if it's happening to you, odds are it's happening to somebody else. And like, so just write, what you want to write and don't worry about making it look like something that you see. Um, that would, the, would be my advice. Excellent. Meredith Scordino, potentially annoying in a room, but absolutely <laughs> excellent as a podcast guest. Thank you very much for being part of our show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you guys so much. You guys are awesome to talk to. I could do this all day. And that's our last episode of Screaming Into the Hollywood Abyss. As always, we want to thank James Launch for the amazing theme music. Do you, before we sort of thank our wives and stuff, do you think anyone actually listens this far or do they stop when the music comes back in? I think they normally stop after you mention your second and third podcasts. That'd be my guess. Well, I haven't mentioned them yet, though, have I? Uh, if you do want to reach out with us to us for criticisms, complaints, or praise, uh, you can either reach out to us through the website or I am at an Epsilon on Twitter. And Dan, you have an account? Not that anyone really cares about. So if you've got complaints about the show, go to N Epsilon and feel free to air those. If you have praise or you want to pay us in some way for something, come to at Dan Rutstein. And have a great day.